Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Scene of the Crime, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Scene of the Crime Season 1 explores the murders of two children and the subsequent investigation. Listener discretion is advised. This episode, Episode 7, will be our last installment discussing the horrific murders that took place three years ago in Delphi, Indiana. Since the April 2019 press conference, there has been no additional official information released by the multi-agency task force on the case. Authorities have assured the public that they continue to work this case actively every day, with numerous dedicated officers following up on the tips that continue to come in daily, even after 36 months have elapsed. Let's take a look at how the tips are handled. Each tip that is called or emailed into the Delphi tip line, which numbered 46,000 as of November 2019, gets entered into the FBI system called Pyramid. Superintendent Carter told Kelsey that the sheer number of tips was initially overwhelming. Well, we, we had so many, we couldn't manage them early on. And we're up to around 46,000 now. That's why we brought in the system the FBI offered. The pyramid system catalogs and stores information like names, descriptions, and motives, so it can be cross-referenced with other tips. If authorities have received multiple tips on the Delphi tip line that contain similar information, the tips will automatically be cross-referenced. But the pyramid system also looks for possible connections to other crimes throughout the nation, alerting investigators to potentially related crimes in other areas. Callers to the tip line are encouraged to convey the following information to the person taking the tip. Suspect name. Date of birth or approximate age. Physical description, that is, height, weight, hair color, eye color. Specific address or location last seen. 
specific vehicle descriptions, that is, license plate, year, make, model, color. Specific reason for tip, that is, why does caller believe he or she could be the suspect? Motivation for the crime, connection to Delphi. Because months have elapsed with seemingly no movement on the case, the lack of information has caused speculation and rumors regarding Abby and Libby and their killer to spin out of control. Law enforcement has felt the need to issue continual reminders to the public not to name names, post supposed suspects on social media, or publicize side-by-sides of the sketch and actual citizens. But it isn't just individuals resembling the suspect that are the subject of accusatory commentary and rampant speculation. Things that have simple explanations have been turned into full-blown conspiracy theories by an online community desperate for answers where there are none. An example of this is the fact that Abby and Libby have different dates of death on their headstones. Abby's is February 14, 2017, but Libby's is February 13th. This disparity led to rumors that Abby and Libby died on different days, that Abby was still alive when she was found, that the girls had been transported somewhere and kept alive for some time. This could not be further from the truth. Both girls were killed on the afternoon of the 13th, where they were found. The simple explanation is that Indiana law allows the next of kin to choose as the date of death either the date the person actually expired or the date on which the person was found deceased. The two families simply chose different options. There is nothing more to it than that. Another subject of rampant speculation plaguing this case is whether law enforcement is covering for someone or covering something up. We will not devote time debunking this baseless rumor. Kelsey and Doug Carter addressed it for us. Right now, I think there's a really big rumor that the police are covering something up, which is not happening. And I think I think people could just look at the fact that the law enforcement is going with us to do all these things and realize that that's not what's happening. Like They're putting so much effort into this. There's no way that they could be covering something up. I've had those conversations with people before, and I'll keep those are private conversations. I promise you on the lives of the two people that are most important to me in my lifetime, and that is my daughter and my wife. That's not happening. And, and it will, while I'm here, there will be nothing of, of the like. Mm-hmm. And that's just a rumor. And that, you know, today in, in, in today's world, is, again, it's easy to say something like that, but take, take a step back and think about what it would mean for that to actually occur. It's just not. Things got so bad that in July 2019, Kelsey German posted a lengthy YouTube video debunking rumors that had taken on lives of their own. Kelsey reminded everyone that rumors suck and they hurt people. In the public's zeal to solve the case, they have often forgotten that all of these people they are scrutinizing are real people, and baseless rumor-mongering has tangible, hurtful impact. Kelsey explains this. It's been extremely hurtful to hear some of the things that people have to say. It, I think it's really defeating to know that people will read something on the Internet about a person and believe that thing without confirming that it's fact with the family. And the things that they say aren't definitely aren't true, but 
the things that they're saying are so crazy that half of them are impossible. Half of them are really disgusting and disturbing things that they have to say just because they want to make something up to make the crime make sense to them, I guess, in a way. It takes a lot of energy out of us. It makes us feel like maybe we should just stop talking because if we stop talking, they'll have something to not talk about. They'll they'll be done if we're done. So it, it kind of takes away from the case in more ways than one. Some examples of unfounded rumors that Kelsey addressed and shot down in her video were that Libby was pregnant. She was not. And she did not even have a boyfriend. As Kelsey told us, Rumors that Libby was dating a much older boy were totally untrue. Libby's phone was tracked moving around town after the girls went missing. Rather, it pinged two different towers, but never left the scene. Cody had no alibi. He was at work. Derek was involved. This last one seems to be based on Derek's resistance to granting interviews or commenting publicly on his daughter's case. Derek is simply someone who wants to grieve privately and who does not trust the media to convey his words without twisting them or even misreporting them. There is nothing nefarious about his lack of public appearances, and any connection between Derek's past and what happened to Libby and Abby is, again, one of the first things that investigators would have looked at. If there were anything there, they would have put it together by now. Another rumor that Kelsey debunked in her video was the rumor that her family had not been cooperative with the investigation. She said that the extended family members took polygraphs, submitted DNA samples, handed over their electronics and records, and answered each and every question posed to them by investigators in multiple interviews. Becky revealed at CrimeCon 2018 that, We went to them first and said, check us out. We offered to do anything they wanted, day one. They were very polite and respectful. If it was someone in my family and I thought I knew who it was, I would have turned them in. Now, let's get down to business and find this guy. Ironically, when the initial sketch of the older, bulkier suspect with a goatee was released in 2017, Mike Patty himself became the target of online speculation that he was the man on the bridge. Mike addressed this directly, saying, I have features that resemble that. Most Midwestern guys with builds like me can look like that. Guys, it's not me. They've checked me out. I was at work. People still say it's me. But I won't let that bother me. In one of the more lighthearted exchanges in this case, Sergeant Jerry Holman, also on the CrimeCon panel, sympathized with Mike, saying that, even he hasn't avoided public suspicion. He said, I feel Mike's pain. I got two tips on me. I have a raspy voice. The tips didn't bother me, but what hurt me was they said I was heavyset and have a chubby face. Mike retorted with, That's better than what they said about me. They said I was too fat to be the guy. All joking aside, this podcast does not intend to address all the rumors and false information out there. People need to remember that spreading baseless rumors can have a deleterious effect on the case. Our goal in this podcast is exclusively to relay information that is factual. 
But the sad truth is that three years after the crime, many feel that we know no more facts than we did three days afterwards. The overarching questions of the case remain unanswered. Was this a random crime of opportunity, carried out by a murderous psychopath who happened to be on the trail that day, saw the girls, decided to seize the moment when they were alone on the bridge, and who was just lucky to get away with it? Or, conversely, was this man an experienced, organized killer who set out that day to murder someone, or at least to abduct someone? He came prepared, and he planned his attack, his M.O., and his escape? Or were the girls possibly specifically targeted by someone who wanted to abduct or kill Abby or Libby, or both? Someone who knew they were going to be on the trails that day, or who followed or lured them there? There are vehement advocates of all of these possibilities, and facts in the case that could bolster each one of these theories. Let's review what we know to be true. Abby and Libby were on the Monon High Bridge, alive and well, around 2.07 p.m. But by 2.30, the man who killed the girls was approaching them on the bridge. This white man was wearing a dark blue zipped jacket over a hoodie, jeans, and possibly a hat and fanny pack. Something about this man inspired Libby to surreptitiously record him on her phone. Video and audio exist of the man on the bridge who killed the girls. The killer ordered the girls down the hill and murdered them on Ron Logan's property across the stream from the bridge's end in a remote and wooded area. Libby's shoe and possibly some clothing items were found nearby, as was Libby's phone. Investigators believe the killer to be 18 to 40, youthful looking, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 10 inches, and 180 to 200 pounds. These are the basic facts of the case. Now, let's take a look at the possibilities we raised earlier. Whether this was a crime of opportunity, whether this was a planned crime with a generic target, or whether Abby and Libby were the targets all along. There are many, including experienced profilers and experts, who maintain that the suspect arrived at the bridge that day prepared to kill someone. The bulky items which appear to be tucked under his jacket, his ensuring that no witnesses were anywhere near the bridge, his ability to silently and stealthily control multiple victims, his failure to leave behind clues and forensic evidence, his success at covering his tracks, his evident lack of a traceable cell phone footprint, he did not take Libby's phone, if he knew about it, and he does not appear to have had his own, all lead to the conclusion that this was a very disciplined, organized killer. It is almost certain that the killer scouted the area to be sure there were no witnesses in the vicinity before taking action, and then watched the girls from a hidden vantage point until he was sure that he could trap them on the bridge. And it is believed that he may have still been in the area when searches for the girls commenced. This shows a level of planning and patience that implies a controlled, perhaps experienced killer. This person had likely fantasized about killing and was not acting on impulse. As Robert Ives pointed out to us, it is very unusual for a killer to tell no one of his feats, and an immature, spontaneous, narcissistic murderer 
would likely fail to keep his awful secret the way it seems this man has. Human nature being what it is, it's hard for me to believe that anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. After all, it has been three years. If the killer bragged to someone, that person has had ample opportunity to come forward. Although, since Indiana is a death penalty state, it could be that the killer's confidants are protecting him by not turning him in. If, on the other hand, the killer restrained himself and told no one, then he is the only person alive who knows what he did that day. Of course, Delphi could be a crime of opportunity. Thousands of crimes of opportunity occur every day. Dr. Catherine M. Brown tells us that statistically, this is likely what happened. The majority of these victims are really, unfortunately, victims of opportunity. The offender is not really looking for a particular age of child. Um, They just happen to be looking and the the opportunity essentially presents itself for them to abduct a child. And so when you have dual abductions, it's likely that the offender may have just intended to abduct one child, but then two um, children with lack of, say, an appropriate guardian um, or anyone around them, the opportunity just presented itself and they chose to take both children. But it defies credulity in the minds of many that this man was just out for a stroll on this warm day. He happened to see two girls alone. He made a spur-of-the-moment decision to attack them, and he managed to do so in such a clean and efficient manner, leaving very little evidence behind. On the other hand, it is entirely possible that this man was just out for a stroll, happened to have a weapon on his person, saw the victims, spontaneously attempted to isolate and sexually assault or abduct one or both girls, and was taken by surprise when the girls decided to run. If they broke away and ran across the creek, Libby losing her shoe in the process, he could have overtaken them and killed them both in a rage or to silence them. In the alternative, this man could have been driving by the drop-off point and seen the girls exiting Kelsey's car, parked his car at the CPS building, gathered the tools and gear he needed, and walked quickly to the bridge, knowing that two young girls would likely be headed there. Once he cornered them, they were sitting ducks. It's feasible that the murders could have occurred in this manner with minimal planning, no witnesses, and with the suspect leaving behind little in the way of evidence. But he would have had to have gotten very, very lucky. One of the predominant online theories in this case is that the girls were specific intended targets of this lethal violence, that Abby and or Libby were the intended victims of a planned attack, and perhaps they were lured to the location or catfished. Catfishing, in the digital sense, is defined as luring someone into a relationship by means of a functional online persona. This whole rumor, that Abby and Libby were lured to the Monon High Bridge Trail that day to meet someone they thought they knew online, but instead were met by their killer— seems to be based on a comment by Indiana State Police Sergeant Kim Riley in the early days. It is taken as fact that Sergeant Riley warned parents that they should know what their children were doing online. 
But what Sergeant Riley actually said was, in the audio clip we featured in an earlier episode, parents should make sure they know where their children are and what their children are doing, and, if nothing else, know what's going on in their lives. Sergeant Riley did not refer to online activity at all in his warning to parents. Kelsey told us that she does not believe that Sergeant Riley's warning was intended to point to anything in particular. I think he just wanted parents to watch out for their kids, to know where they were, especially because this guy was out there somewhere and we didn't know who he was. We don't know who he is. Now, as we know, Libby did have a social media presence. Her factory reset of her phone, something any tween with an iPhone can do in the settings function, the week before, also contributed to rumors that Libby was hiding an online relationship from her family. Never mind that her family had access to her phone and checked it regularly. Here is Becky. I would get on her phone. Uh, I never really noticed anything bad on there. And like I said, I, I had passwords to most of her accounts that I could get on there at any time if I wanted to see what was going on. You know, they have never questioned anything to us on social media. Kelsey herself checked through all of Libby's messages from that day, as well as her Snapchat, which Libby always screencapped, and found no evidence that the girls had planned to meet anyone on the trails. Also feeding rumors was Abby's secret Facebook account, the one that was discovered while the girls were still missing. Her clandestine contact on this account? An age-appropriate teen boy who attended her funeral. Rest assured, these are the first things that the multi-agency task force on the case, which includes the FBI with all its technological resources, would check. Investigators would be able to see every single person the girls were in digital communication with, even if the communications or contacts were deleted. In fact, several males that the girls had been in touch with were interviewed. Superintendent Doug Carter succinctly summed up the social media aspect of the investigation for us. We know a lot. It's important to remember that 14-year-old Libby cannot outsmart the FBI by resetting her phone or deleting messages. If someone was in communication with either of the girls, technological forensic investigators have looked into that person. It seems a safe assumption that with all the brilliant law enforcement minds working this case, any angles relating to people who were in communication with the girls, whether electronically or otherwise, have been investigated and eliminated. Even if catfishing did not occur, many still believe that Libby and Abby were targeted for some reason by someone who knew that they would be out on the trails that day. This would have to be someone who knew them, even if they didn't know him. Remember, police have video and audio of the girls anxiously discussing the man behind them on the bridge. If they knew him, they would have said so. Again, law enforcement has checked every one of the girls' connections known to them. They have interviewed people at the schools, on the girls' teams, friends of friends, and so on. Of course, it is possible that investigators missed someone, or that they interviewed someone who lied and convinced them he was not involved. This could be, for example, a school employee or sports team manager 
who would have known that the girls were off school on a random Monday in February. But if you recall, the decision by the girls to go to the trail that day was a last minute one. Kelsey German herself told us this. The girls did that very last minute, so I don't think that they invited anyone. Rumors that the trip to the Monon High Bridge was planned days in advance are untrue. So it is very unlikely that someone who wanted to kill specifically Abby or Libby or both would have known where they would be that day. Robert Ives, who was fully involved in the investigation as Carroll County prosecutor until he stepped down for health reasons at the end of 2017, told us there was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls would be there that day. And a lot of investigation went into determining, did anybody know? The reason they were out there in the most general sense was, it was an outrageously beautiful day for February. I've never seen anything that would lead me to believe that anybody would have known they were coming. As Kelsey points out, It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day that was in that vulnerable moment that the girls were in. If the girls were targeted, the family would have been notified. Even if Abby and Libby were not targeted, and the killer was on the trails that day hoping to find a victim, any victim, it is possible that the killer knew that children were likely to be at the bridge that day, given that it was a planned holiday from school, the weather was nice, and the bridge area was something of a teen hangout. The killer could also have known that the geocaches in the bridge area would attract young people, and that the bridge dead ends in remote woodlands where his victims would be trapped. But, of course, all of that presumes something that, again, we do not know the answer to, whether the killer was a local. Dr. Catherine M. Brown tells us that this may be the case. Most of the time, they're out looking, or maybe they've seen a child, or they, they abduct a child that's fairly close to where they live, where they work. So they tend to operate in areas that they're very familiar with. And so they may they may not be stalking, say, a particular child, but they may be primed and ready um, to engage in this type of behavior. Superintendent Carter shared his personal opinion about whether the suspect is a local with Kelsey. My own personal opinion? Probably at least some familiarity with the Delphi area. But that's just that's just me. I I think that you have to know the Delphi area to go across that bridge. Well, that's why I say that. Mm-hmm. I, I, if you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge but is scary. It is scary. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a train on that track since I think 1929. Yeah. And those railroad ties are rotted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that bridge scares me. So yeah. for somebody to be able to cross it, just like watching that short video, just watching him cross it in that little bit, you're like. He's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. Someone who had been on that bridge before would know how to walk on the decrepit and rotting ties. He would know that despite the red barricade indicating that it was not intended for pedestrians, it was commonly walked on, and it had a dead end that sloped down into woods. There were no trail cameras filming the bridge at that time. The Monon High Bridge Trail is known to and used primarily by locals. Someone familiar with the area would know of the isolated private property where the girls were killed and where he could carry out his murderous deeds undetected. He might even be aware of Deer Creek's shallow, crossable spot. 
A local would know how best to exit the area without attracting attention. And, of course, a local would know that Delphi schools were closed that day. At the April 2019 press conference, Superintendent Carter stated that the suspect is likely a local or someone familiar with the area. He could just be someone who works in the area or worked at the Indiana Packers plant for a time before moving on. But there are some indications that law enforcement believes that the suspect may have moved on from Delphi or is known outside the area. Most significantly, the campaign to establish digital billboards in 46 states showing the photo of the man on the bridge and the willingness of members of the Indiana State Police to travel with the family to national conventions and news programs. Here is Robert Ives. I thought initially it had to be somebody local, as people have said. And now I really don't know. I, I guess I'm afraid it might be somebody who happened to be there at the right time. I'm shocked, and I promise you the police are shocked, that it wasn't solved in a day or two because it just didn't seem – we're not used to in rural Indiana. Normally, if person A murders person B, it's obvious who the suspects are. It certainly seems that for a Delphi native, in a town where everyone is said to know everyone else – it would be very risky to abduct and kill two girls in the very place where he himself lives. A chilling offshoot of the theory that the killer was out hunting on February 13, 2017, and Abby and Libby were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, is the unavoidable conclusion that the murderer has killed before. There has not been much official discussion of whether the girls could have fallen victim to a serial killer, but the question has to be raised. In an interview where he was asked to give his opinion on the Delphi case, criminal profiler John Douglas, the original Mindhunter, says that the suspect's use of the word guys indicates that perhaps the killer knew his victims, or possibly that he is someone who has had interaction with children. In Douglas's opinion, the person who killed the girls likely has some kind of criminal history. You don't wake up one day and commit a double homicide like this, he said. There has to be some kind of trail. Dr. Catherine M. Brown confirms this. It is much more likely that these offenders will commit a, a crime against children do have a pretty high percentage of child abduction murderers that have committed serious crimes against children. This sentiment seems to be echoed by Superintendent Carter, who discussed this point with Kelsey. There's a likelihood that he has either done this before or will do it again. Carter has held this opinion since much earlier in the investigation. He appeared on the Megyn Kelly show in January 2018, where he stated, We believe that a person that would commit a crime like this, with such incredibly evil intent, likely has committed that crime before, and with that known, he likely will commit it again. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Prosecutor Robert Ives would not go so far as to confirm to us that he believes a serial killer is at work in Delphi, but he did allude to the possibility. I don't say this person's a serial killer. All I can say is, is that generally you only get killed by your friends. You only get killed by your relatives. If you can trust your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, because almost all murders in rural Indiana are crimes of passion. Somebody's really mad about something. You're not killed by a stranger. They don't kill you to take your wallet. You know, they don't kill you just hijack your car. They kill you because they're mad about some romantic relationship or some family relationship or something like that. That's what happens. This is not like that. There is no apparent motive. There's no logical reason for it. It makes no sense. Robert Ives pulled no punches when asked what type of person murdered Abby and Libby. A person with no conscience. I mean, a sociopath. In other words, someone like a serial killer. And we know that the investigators on the case are considering a serial killer at work to be a possibility as well. For one thing, they looked hard at the similar case in Iowa where Lyric and Elizabeth were killed. Further, the FBI became involved in the Delphi case almost immediately. Something specific triggered the intense interest of federal law enforcement. Whether this was because the crime scene appeared to be the work of a serial killer, or just because it was exceptional in some other way, we do not know. Speculation by the public that the crime was particularly violent or gruesome has persisted. This speculation has been fueled by veiled references made by authorities to the crime scene being horrific. Superintendent Doug Carter famously told the Indy Channel of the crime, I'll never be able to unsee what I saw that day. Anna lamented that the girls died horrifically. Robert Ives told us that the crime scene was very unusual and said that, There is a lot of crime scene evidence. Uh, some of it is somewhat odd, but but when I say that, any murder scene tends to have odd facts about it. I mean, in real life, obviously, people don't kill people really all that often. And this crime scene, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of unique facts there. And honestly, I'm shocked, and I promise you the police are shocked, that it wasn't solved in a day or two because just didn't seem, we're not used to in rural Indiana. Normally, if person A murders person B, it's obvious who the suspects are. And usually it's pretty obvious how to prove they committed the crime. This crime is very strange. That period of time and those deaths, 
are the worst thing that I can ever call. And I grew up in Carroll County and lived there my whole life. It's just as crimes, they're just horrifying. And then for me, it was very frustrating. A lot of people were working really hard and officers are coming from all these surrounding counties to help. And a lot of really sharp people are working really hard. And it's so frustrating that we can't get find any justice. It's all, it's horrible. And it, it bothers me today. And I, I wish I wish they would get a breakthrough and I wish there was something else I could do to help, but I don't know what there's I can do to help. So as, as a frustration for in my career, it's by a huge margin, the, the worst case, the worst crime and the most frustrating outcome so far that I can recall. And remember that Robert Ives described the killer's actions that day as bizarre and horrible in a clip we played earlier in this episode. But whether this looked like the work of an experienced killer or the murders had a uniquely disturbing signature, we can only guess. Another favorite topic of speculation on this case is whether the suspect acted alone. Many feel that controlling two unpredictable victims in the daytime in a public setting and murdering them one by one would be difficult for just one man. And very early in the investigation, authorities were not ruling out that more than one person could have been responsible for killing Abby and Libby. Sergeant Kim Riley stated in early 2017, there's still a possibility there may be more than one suspect. We have not narrowed it down to how many people have been involved in this. But eventually, as we know, investigators seemed to move away from the multiple offender theory. When introducing the video of the man on the bridge, Superintendent Carter stated unequivocally that this was the man who killed the girls. There was only one man on that bridge. There is only one male voice on the audio. Only one sketch is being used to depict the killer. The other is to be disregarded. And the April 22, 2019 press conference remarks were addressed to the killer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's address the one piece of evidence that many feel is most likely to solve this case. DNA. We know that DNA not belonging to the girls was found at the crime scene. And we can assume that it is not known who that DNA belongs to. It is our understanding that only a small amount of DNA was found, and it is unknown what type of DNA this is. Sexual assault of the victims has never been confirmed. Paul Holes talked with us about the most useful sources of DNA for crime investigation purposes. 
Generally, when we're looking at violent crime, the, the types of DNA evidence that might be left behind uh, is usually, uh, you know, in the form of what I call the big three, uh, blood, semen, or saliva. And in this day of modern DNA testing with its sensitivity, uh, we also can deal with hairs, uh, contact DNA, you know, touch DNA, wear DNA if somebody, you know, drops a baseball cap behind. Uh, so there is a, a large array of evidence items. Um, but, you know, in, in, in talking about the big three, the blood, semen, or saliva, uh, you know, most people think blood is just this awesome source of DNA. And, and in reality, at least for the type of DNA that's used in crime labs, this nuclear DNA testing, um, it's actually a very poor source of DNA. Uh, uh, in blood, the primary, you know, the primary cells in blood are red blood cells, which everybody knows from high school biology. But the thing about red blood cells is they're anuclear. They don't have a nucleus, and that's where nuclear DNA is at. So red blood cells are a poor source of DNA. Fortunately, blood has white blood cells that have a lot of DNA in them. And, you know, somebody who has, let's say, a massive infection or has leukemia whose white blood cell count is off the charts, their blood actually contains a tremendous amount of DNA in it. Um, but generally, blood is a poorer source of DNA than something like semen if there's sperm present. The, the male DNA in semen is predominantly found in the sperm. And as long as they're a normal male producing a normal amount of sperm, there's typically a lot of DNA in a semen sample. The same goes with saliva. With saliva, um, the, the fluid saliva doesn't contain a lot of DNA, but because it's coming out of the mouth, and the mouth is lined with this epithelium, this protective coating, this tissue. It has these epithelial cells that are constantly falling off and mixing with the saliva. So saliva typically is a very good source of DNA. That's why we can go after DNA from cigarette butts or chewing gum or drinking straws. Because uh, it does generally have a lot of DNA in it. It just it really comes down to a matter of how much saliva or how much semen or how much blood is deposited at the crime scene, and then in what condition is it in? You know, if we're dealing with an old case, uh, it's possible that the DNA is degraded over time for a variety of reasons. Recall that a cigarette butt was found nearby and collected and preserved by investigators. Same for some items of clothing. All of these things were found in the water. Would DNA still be recoverable from saturated evidentiary items? Paul Holes says yes, possibly. When evidence is in water, especially something you know brackish where you have microorganisms, there is a greater likelihood that that DNA is going to be degraded and or possibly the source of the DNA is going to end up kind of dissolving, solubilizing into that water, uh, and you're going to lose DNA evidence the longer it sits in the water. With that being said, you still have to go after that kind of evidence. And just to give you an anecdotal uh, example, I have a 1980 case, Suzanne Bombardier. She was a 14-year-old girl that was abducted out of her apartment and, and found stabbed 
floating in the Delta in the Bay Area many days. I forget exactly how long, three or four days, nude. And uh, over time, we had tested samples from her body and had just failed to get any type of DNA up until basically right before I retired, we had uh, a swab, an external genitalia swab, uh, that we were able to get a full DNA profile from and search the FBI's CODIS database. And that ultimately gave us enough to arrest Mitch Bacon, uh, who was a boyfriend of the victim's older sister. And this just shows the tremendous uh, improvement in the DNA testing uh, technology. This was a swab from the outside surface of a nude victim that had been floating in just dirty, filthy water in the Bay Area for days, and we were able to get a DNA profile from that. So when I hear cases in which labs refuse to test items that have been put in water because they believe they won't get a DNA profile, I will press hard and say, no, you need to go after that. You don't know until you look. Don't just assume you can't get a DNA profile because there are examples out there of success under those situations. If the source of the small sample of DNA found at the scene of Libby and Abby's murder is not one of the three major sources, saliva, blood, or semen, it may just be touch DNA. This is DNA left behind from basic contact. If touch DNA was found, and we have heard that it was, then it is possible that it belongs to the suspect, who almost certainly came into contact with the girls he killed. Paul Holes again. Can't limit ourselves to going after DNA from the big three. In this day and age with the sensitivity of DNA testing, now we're looking at the contact DNA. And that's hit or miss. Uh, you know, sometimes you can get a great DNA profile from, you know, a, an object that somebody touched. And sometimes, and many times, you can't get any DNA from something that somebody's touched. The downside to touch DNA, of course, is that it can easily lead investigators down the wrong path. Colleen Fitzpatrick, the renowned forensic genealogist and one of the founders of the DNA Doe Project, explained this for us. Say, like, I meet you when we shake hands. We're out, you know, somewhere at a store, and I haven't seen you in a while. We shake hands, give a hug, and, you know, we talk a minute and go away. And then I go somewhere, and I murder somebody, or I go into a house, or rob a house. And shown that because we shook hands, when I touch that doorknob, your DNA might be on the doorknob. Paul Holes explains further. When you start swabbing door handles... As an example, to try to recover DNA, you, you typically get three, four, or five or more people's DNA in that door handle, and it just becomes an uninterpretable mess. If you recall, Abby and Libby were wearing sweatshirts borrowed from Kelsey. If there was DNA from anyone Kelsey came into contact with on those items of clothing, it could explain the DNA picked up by analysts. Paul Holes says that eliminating DNA as belonging to third parties is part of the job. 
In any particular case, we have to account for the possibility that DNA that has been recovered is coming from just their normal living environment, that the people that they are in contact with uh, over the just their their normal life, you know, whether it's uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whether it's family members. And so investigators will typically ask uh, for what we call elimination uh, DNA samples from those individuals. Uh, and uh, the DNA lab uh, will generate DNA profiles for family members or for consensual partners and always have those on file to compare to any unknown DNA that is present in the case. It is not unusual to find DNA from family members or consensual partners um, that, you know, obviously has nothing to do with why somebody was murdered. Uh, and you want to figure that out as soon as possible in the investigation. So your investigators aren't just going down a rabbit hole thinking that they have probative DNA. You want to eliminate everybody. Uh, in that person's life uh, that you possibly can to ensure that you have a good offender DNA sample that you can now start comparing to potential suspects. In short, if touch DNA was recovered, it could belong to the suspect, or it could belong to some innocent bystander who came into contact with Abby, Libby, or Kelsey. Whatever the source of the DNA, Clearly, there has not been a match made using the CODIS catalog of existing offenders' DNA or an arrest would have been made. And whatever DNA testing by the FBI Sheriff Lesenby referred to in early 2019 has not resulted in an arrest either. It seems that the sample available in this case may be enough to eliminate suspects like Daniel Nations and Charles Eldridge, but not enough for a complete profile. Paul Holes talked with us about this. If you think of a, you know, let's say a, a full DNA profile being the equivalent of the number 10, and, uh, you know, you have a partial DNA profile that is, you know, 7 out of 10, it's possible that with that 7, if you get the right guy that it, it, it matches that 7, that might be sufficient where now you have confidence, you have the right guy. So just the fact that it's a partial DNA profile doesn't mean that all is lost. Oftentimes what we run into with uh, DNA evidence is we get um, a DNA profile that is not a complete profile uh, because there's just too little DNA present or it's too degraded or it's a mixture. It's DNA that is mixed with somebody else's DNA. What we can do in those instances, if we get a suspect and we get that suspect's DNA profile, we can see if that suspect's type is present in that partial profile or present within the mixture. Um, and so we can eliminate that person as being a contributor of the DNA to that sample. Remember that after Paul Edder's suicide in June 2019, Delphi investigators requested DNA from his corpse. Presumably, there was no match there either, since no announcement that Edder was involved in Delphi has been forthcoming. But there are other ways to employ DNA technology. Investigators have made reference to the possibility of familial DNA being used to solve this case, just as it was in the April Tinsley case in Indiana a short time ago. 
In 2018, Sergeant Kim Riley would not confirm or deny that familial DNA methodologies were being used in the Delphi case, but he did admit that investigators were working closely with those who cracked the Tinsley case to see if their methods or findings could help solve the murders of Abby and Libby. Indiana police labs were not equipped to conduct familial DNA tests at that time, so if investigators decided to go down this route, it is likely that they outsourced it. In 2018, Paul Holes discussed the case with one of the Delphi investigators. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, um, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders, um, and he, he provided some information uh, regarding that particular case. And, you know, fundamentally, he was looking for um, some insight as to how the Golden State Killer case was solved and whether or not there was any applicability to that type of strategy with the case that he had. Um, he did provide me some uh, details uh, about the case, uh, which he does not want to have made public. Paul Holes recognized, based on the information exchanged in that conversation, that the Delphi investigators had a tough investigation ahead of them. As we discussed in an earlier episode, in January 2019, Sheriff Tobe Lesenby stated that further evidence had been sent to the FBI at the end of 2018, and that agency was conducting DNA testing research. It's unclear what this means, but it could indicate that new methods of extracting DNA from materials, such as the MVAC system, or the new methodology for extracting DNA from a rootless hair, are being used. Lesenby continued, We are doing DNA testing research. With 23andMe and the other places that do it, that is something that has been discussed. For familial DNA to work to catch the Delphi double murderer, the DNA of a relative of the suspects would have to be already in one of the public genealogy services. The raw data would then have to be uploaded to GEDmatch or another similar service that allows the public access to its database for research purposes. This is what was done with several offenders who have now been arrested, such as Joseph D'Angelo and John Miller. Currently, GEDmatch requires users to opt-in for law enforcement use. However, if less than a full DNA profile was found in the Delphi case, or the DNA was degraded, then forensic genealogy may not work. Colleen Fitzpatrick says, Well, uh, it depends on, you know, the quality and the quantity. So if you have a lot of really good DNA, that's one, one way to look at it. If you have very degraded DNA or DNA that has uh, bacterial contamination, you know, that can present challenges. Paul Holes expounded on this for us. Oftentimes what we run into with uh, DNA evidence is we get a DNA profile that is not a complete profile uh, because there's just too little DNA present or it's too degraded or it's a mixture. It's DNA that is mixed with somebody else's DNA. What we can do in those instances, if we get a suspect and we get that suspect's DNA profile, we can see if that suspect's type is present in that partial profile or present within the mixture. 
Um, and so we can eliminate that person as being a contributor of the DNA to that sample um, under the right situations. However, those types of samples do not lend themselves to doing the type of genealogy DNA testing that we need in order to do the genealogy tool. So we're just stuck being able to eliminate, uh, but we can't pursue the investigative leads that the forensic genealogy testing could possibly give us. And as Colleen Fitzpatrick explains, the genealogical databases do not reach everyone. Your unknown person, whoever he is, man or woman, could be an immigrant, for example. He could be, you know, a German immigrant or even French immigrant from the UK. Could be a child of immigrants, in which case he doesn't probably have a whole lot of family in the United States. And even if they're here, they probably haven't taken one of the DNA tests and uploaded it to GEDmatch. In summary... As is made clear by experts Paul Holes and Colleen Fitzpatrick, the usefulness of DNA relies on a large number of factors. It is not magic. DNA cannot always be used to identify a suspect, and not all DNA samples lend themselves for forensic genealogical testing. There is a possibility, however, that a partial sample of DNA can provide clues to the suspect's physical characteristics. Phenotyping is the process of predicting a person's physical attributes using their genetic information. As phenotyping is explained on the Paraben Nanolabs website, by determining how genetic information translates into physical appearance, it is possible to reverse engineer DNA into a physical profile. In other words, By using phenotyping, it may be possible to figure out some of the suspect's physical traits. Paul Holes explains. It still requires going back to the original DNA extract that the crime lab has produced. If there's enough of that remaining, it's possible that this other technology, the SNP testing technology, might be able to get enough in order to be able to generate enough of a SNP profile for this this phenotyping is you know what color is this individual's eyes what's the individual's ethnicity uh, those types of traits uh, but that is case by case it is possible that phenotyping could be part of the reason that investigators suddenly switched course in 2019 to focus on the new sketch it is unlikely that phenotyping was used to compile the new sketch since we know that it was completed just days after the murders, before any DNA information would have been available. But phenotyping could have been completed by early 2019 and helped investigators determine that the killer more resembles the younger man depicted in the new sketch than the older man in the initial sketch. Finally, If Indiana investigators do have a full or mostly complete DNA profile of the killer, the state law recently enacted requiring that DNA be taken from every felony arrestee will help catch the man on the bridge if anyone sharing his DNA is arrested in the future. So, this is where the case stands now. Since April 2019, investigators have gone silent retaining much information regarding this sensational crime to themselves and repeating the familiar law enforcement mantra 
that this is to protect the integrity of the investigation. With the about face on the sketch in April 2019, returning to a witness report from just days after the murders, investigators seem to be getting back to basics. Superintendent Carter said, we were on to something early on, implying that perhaps the identity of the Delphi killer is within reach somewhere in the massive case file. The number of Indiana State Police, Sheriff's deputies, FBI agents, and Delphi police officers working this case on a daily basis has decreased to the single digits, but authorities continue to assure the families and the public that they will work the case ceaselessly until an arrest is made. Whether that will be next week or next year is anyone's guess. We have no doubt that many members of law enforcement remain dedicated to the case. Here is Superintendent Carter. Uh, I carry a piece of the bridge in my car, and I can't wait to get rid of it. As for the families, they have been a model of strength and resilience throughout this three-year ordeal. Their pain has not lessened. As Abby's grandmother, Diane Erskine, put it, it's like I had open-heart surgery, but they never used any anesthetic, and they say, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to live this way with part of your heart missing the rest of your life. And Becky still feels racked with guilt. There is that guilt. You know, every single day, I, I, you, the shoulda, woulda, coulda. I, I think, oh, if only I would have said no. Or if only I would have said no, you finish the filing first, because the filing wasn't done. And I said, well, what about the filing? And but he said, we'll finish it when we get back. If only I would have said, no, do it first. So many little things could have changed the outcome of that day. But the girl's relatives have found ways to cope. In fall 2017, six months after the murders, the families decided to do what they could to bring public attention to the case. In September 2017, they started a Facebook page dedicated to Abby and Libby's cause, and went on a national media campaign, including appearances on Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, and Nancy Grace. The family and members of the Indiana State Police have appeared on panels at both CrimeCon 2018 and 2019. Mike, Becky, and Anna continue to ensure that the girls remain at the forefront of everyone's minds, feeling strongly that by doing so, they increase the likelihood that someone will come forward with information that can help solve the case. It has not been easy. Becky was diagnosed with cancer at the end of 2018. She has remained largely silent on her condition so as not to take focus off the girls. She and Mike continue to work with members of Abby's family toward their goal of creating the Abby Williams and Libby German Memorial Softball Park, scheduled to open this year. The 20-acre park will feature three softball fields, playgrounds, and other recreational areas. The German, Patty, and Williams families, and the Delphi community at large, still continue to memorialize and honor the girls at an annual Celebration of Life event held each summer in Delphi. Here is Kelsey. We'll do whatever we can to make sure that the girls are remembered and 
they remembered for the good things that they brought this world, not for the bad thing that took them away. Carrie Timmons, Kelsey and Libby's mom, has stated that she now hopes to start a foundation to help other families through situations like the one she has been through. Libby's dad, Derek, still struggles with his daughter's tragic death. Here is his mother, Becky. Well, Derek, you know, takes it day by day. We don't talk about Libby much at all. Him and Libby were close. They were a lot alike. They had their own little bond. And, you know, Derek realizes that he messed up in life and, 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 he, and he missed out on a lot of the girls' lives because of some of the choices he made. And I know he, he feels the guilt and stuff over that, and, and he has to deal with all of that. So I know Derek struggles with the fact that he was there. He was looking for them when the killer was probably there. He knows that. That is devastating to him. You know, think about it. Him thinking, I I couldn't save her. As for Anna, the summer after Abby died, she and her father Cliff went out on a horseback ride, one of Abby's favorite activities. The two riders were accompanied by a riderless horse, saddled with a wreath of flowers in memory of Abby. Anna says grimly that for her, there's no moving on, there's moving forward. She tells Nobody us, ever plans for this. And you're, you find yourself in the one major job that you ever had in your entire life. Being a mother was a number one job. I, I've been helping raise my brothers and sisters, and then I had a baby young that raising, raising kids was what I've been doing. And now I have none of that. I am blessed to have a lot of very good friends um, with children her age and younger and older. You know, I, there's always a role because aunties get to have more fun anyway. So it's it's always going to be hard. But she's not gone. She's still very much in our house. Kelsey German, for her part, seems to have found herself in the tragic loss of her sister. Initially, Kelsey coiled into herself in her grief and her guilt. She convinced herself that it was her fault that if she had gone with the girls that day or refused to drive them there at all, they would still be alive. Becky details how guilty Kelsey felt. Kelsey has struggled so much of, I should have been there with her. Why didn't I just go with her? And she's the one that dropped them off. She was the last one to see them. She struggles with the fact that she, she dropped them off. Becky also described how she was worried about Kelsey after the murders. In the beginning, Kelsey never talked. She didn't talk to us about it. She refused to talk about anything. She talked to the police, but we didn't. And she didn't start talking to us until after we went on the Dr. Phil show. And then it was like it just, the floodgates opened. And uh, she, uh, before then, she wanted nothing to do with, um, first off, the media. She refused to talk. She did, wanted nothing to do with any of the fundraisers or if we would go set up to, to pass out flyers and stuff. She wanted nothing to do with any of it. Nope. I, I, that, that's her thing. She was just very turned inside herself. Close to a year after her sister died, Kelsey finally managed to quell her inner torment 
and draw on Libby's strength to find her own. Prior to my sister's death, I was always the quiet and shy person in the room. So Libby was kind of the voice that I didn't have. She would speak up when I wouldn't. She would be loud when I wanted to be quiet and make me talk more. But I didn't have that anymore. Um, So for the first year, I was probably still like that. I didn't want to talk to people. But it was for a different reason. I just, I didn't trust anyone. Rather than continuing to beat herself up, she decided to try to help find her sister's killer. She became an advocate for her sister's case, starting with a Twitter account she uses to spread the word about the unknown suspect. Kelsey was inspired not only by Libby, but by Michelle Cruz, whom she met at CrimeCon 2018. Cruz lost her own sister Janelle to the Golden State Killer. The two sisters of victims struck up a friendship, and Cruz became something of a mentor to Kelsey, teaching her how to use social media to reach out to the public to share her sister's story. Kelsey became so involved in Libby's case that she has now shifted her major in college to biological forensics, hoping that she can help solve crimes like her sister's and help prevent families from having to suffer years of heartache over unsolved murders. I found Libby's voice. I was able to start talking to people. I was able to start trusting people and making connections. And that's kind of what led me to my advocacy. That's what led me to help other people. And all of that happened because of my sister. Becky talks about the change in Kelsey. Once she started embracing that she was Libby's sister and she realized, I want to help find this killer. I want to do something. And she started embracing all of that. Now look at her. Kelsey now has a tattoo in honor of her sister that reads, I can't see you, but I can feel you. She says that because of her sister's unsolved case, she still looks at the people around her with a heightened sense of suspicion. Here she is. We also watch each other's backs. If something happens, we know that we're we're all there to take care of that person. We watch the people around us too because we know that he's there somewhere. So it also causes us to trust people a little less. After all, the man on the bridge could be anyone. What about the other character in this story? The one who remains completely unaltered, steadfast in its place overlooking Deer Creek, coldly unaffected by the horrors of February 13, 2017. Of course, we are talking about the Monon High Bridge. The bridge was fenced off after the murders, but it also became something of a macabre tourist attraction, with people traveling from afar to see it for themselves. Anna said in an interview with journalist James Renner, I cringe, and I get angry at the folks that traipse out there like it's an amusement park to them. It's like a hotspot everybody wants to see. There's a memorial there. Two little girls died here. Horrifically. Horrifically. It's upsetting. Why do people need to go out and see it? As morbid as it seems, public interest in the Monon High Bridge increased sharply after the murders. Its lofty height, worn trestles, and dark, looming presence make for an atmospherically appropriate attractant for curious crime buffs. In May 2019, 
it was announced that a $1.2 million state grant had been awarded to help convert the Monon High Bridge into a pedestrian walkway. The project will include the addition of decking and safety rails and paving a mile of the Monon High Bridge Trail itself. The bridge, ownership of which was transferred to Indiana Landmarks from CSX Corporation in 2017, will become an official part of the trail that bears its name. With these updates, there is hope that the bridge will take on a renewed identity as an idyllic scenic destination rather than one associated with tragedy and death. For the thousands of people who follow the Delphi murders, the fact that the case remains unsolved after three years, despite having video and audio of the killer, is astounding. The victim herself left behind the key to identifying her killer, yet his name eludes us. And that fact is why this case is so very haunting. Libby's courage and strength in capturing that video of the man who would imminently murder her cannot have been in vain. We have hope that the men and women working to solve this crime will prevail, that today is the day. As Becky put it, there's never going to be true justice for us because you can't bring the girls back. It's our job to fight to keep it out there to do whatever it takes to find this person or persons that did this to them. This is our job now. When Anna was asked what justice will look like for her in her daughter's case, she said, Justice will be that deep breath we get to take when my friend's children are sleeping in their beds again, when people don't worry about their children playing outside. Justice is in law enforcement. We believe in law enforcement. We believe in the FBI and everyone else that has worked on this case. That's where justice will come from. Paul Holes summed it up for us. Knowing what I know about the case and knowing what I know about the state of the investigation, I know law enforcement out there in Indiana is trying to do everything they possibly can. And uh, I do think that it is a solvable case, but it is going to be hard. And people who are heavily invested in wanting to see it solved are going to have to be patient. Progress is being made in the area of DNA extraction technology and forensic genealogy every day. So even if the case cannot be solved by scientific means today, there is still hope for tomorrow. And if the science fails to come through for these families, perhaps someone will do the right thing and turn in the killer. Superintendent Carter and Kelsey are in agreement that someone knows something. Do you think it's likely that someone knows who the killer is and hasn't come forward? 100% sure of that, in my mind. Yeah, me too. As of November 2019, the reward for information leading to the apprehension of the murderer of Libby German and Abby Williams stands at $216,000. Anna continues to hope that someone will do the right thing. I don't speak to him. I have not. We have pleaded with anybody who knows anything, um, because somebody does. Somebody's family member has a feeling. They haven't called in a tip yet. They haven't sent something in. Something is off and they know it, and I would like to speak to them. We, we, need, to, we need our closure. I plead with whoever knows who this person is, because obviously he doesn't care enough to come forward, but somebody needs to.
somebody knows. Somebody knows. And they need to do the right thing. This sentiment is echoed by Kelsey. I hope that you're really close to turning yourself in. I want him to know. I want you to know that what you did really hurt our family, but you didn't take our power away. And that our community is so much powerful than you are. We're going to catch you. And it's coming really soon. So I just hope that you're out there thinking about that and dreading the day that we get to look in your eye and tell you how much you took from us and how much we hope that you suffer in prison. What is it about Abby's and Libby's case that has captured the hearts and minds of so many people, not just in Delphi or Indiana, but across the United States and even around the world? What is it that has inspired thousands of people to discuss the case on the dozens of Facebook groups and other online forums dedicated to this case, even after three years have elapsed? Could it be because, as a society, monsters like the Delphi murderer who killed children are reviled by us, yet we know that they hide amongst us? Or maybe it is because in Libby and Abby, we are reminded of our own loved ones. And we know that it could have been our families on the bridge that day. Perhaps it simply comes down to what Superintendent Doug Carter said in the first anniversary press conference. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. Maybe Doug Carter is right. Maybe Abby and Libby are all of our daughters. And we cannot allow evil to prevail. This final episode of Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, Delphi, is being released on February 13, 2020, the third anniversary of the murders of Abby and Libby in Delphi, Indiana. By spreading the word about this case, perhaps we can ensure that the monster responsible for their deaths is apprehended before another painful anniversary arrives. Should there be an arrest or major break in the case, you can expect an update episode here on this feed, so be sure to stay subscribed to this podcast. That will also ensure that you catch Season 2 of Scene of the Crime as soon as it's available. Please, if you haven't already done so, share Abby's and Libby's story on social media. Help get the word out. And of course, if you have any information about the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams, please call the tip line at 1-844-459-5786. Scene of the Crime is narrated by me, Natalie Gray. Research and writing by Jessica Bettencourt. Technical advisor, Gray Hughes. Consulting producer, Kelsey German. Producers Gray Hughes, Jessica Bettencourt, and Mike Morford. Executive producer Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Special thanks to the families of Liberty German and Abigail Williams, Kelsey German, Mike Patty, Becky Patty, and Anna Williams. Thanks also goes out to Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter, Robert Ives, Paul Holes, Dr. Catherine M. Brown, Colleen Fitzpatrick, Drew Collins, Michael Bennett, and Bree Wilbur. 
If you'd like to help this podcast reach new listeners, be sure to subscribe to it and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please recommend Scene of the Crime to your friends. You can find Scene of the Crime on Twitter with the handle at Scene of Crime Pod.